Hello, everybody. Welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard, and I am your host, uh, where we answer your healthcare and health insurance questions. So please call or text in your questions, uh, and we will get you answers in future shows. Uh, today, we'll be answering your health insurance and Medicare questions, and also we'll be talking more about abortion after uh, Roe versus Wade. And our first question from our viewer is from Ricky uh, that has an issue with uh, prescription health programs from vendors that are um, making promises um, they uh, didn't actually deliver on. And so uh, we're not going to speak to the specific legal issues with that. But uh, Alika from Health Sherpa is going to talk about prescription drug copay assistance programs more broadly. So, welcome, Alika. What options are there uh, for Ricky? Thanks, Laura. Um, so, I think what, again, Ricky might be referring to here is um, prescription drug assistance programs from the drug manufacturer. And how this is a very, very common way for folks to get. Um, assistance paying for very expensive drugs. Um, it's really common for insulin, um, some of those most more specialty medications. Um, these programs are generally run by the manufacturer of the drug, um, and patients might need to prove that they meet certain eligibility guidelines. Um, for example, some programs might only be open to people without insurance or people within certain income brackets. Um, once you submit an application and are approved, uh, you're then able to access that medication at a lower copay or sometimes even for free for a certain period. Um, so one thing I, I would just mention there and um, in terms of folks, you know, delivering on, on promises they might be making in those programs is I think generally I would recommend making sure that when you apply um, to one of these patient assistance programs, you're making sure you're going straight to the manufacturer itself and, and not going through some kind of third party um, that might be um, perhaps less reliable. Um, so that's the sort of patient assistance program piece. Um, one other option that is often a good uh, thing to explore uh, looking for, for folks who are looking for lower cost drugs are pharmacy coupons. You may have heard of sites like GoodRx that do this. Um, and the uh, those work a little bit differently. Um, in those cases, you're getting an, an actual coupon for the drug itself, but generally can't use your insurance. So in that instance, you want to be especially careful because um, you might, again, be getting a really great deal on that um, prescription, but the amount you're spending towards that isn't going towards your, your pharmacy deductible or your out-of-pocket limit. Um, so that's just something to consider if you're exploring one of those uh, coupon programs as well. Absolutely. And pay attention to what Congress is doing right now, because uh, it, there's a possibility that they will finally pass uh, something to lower the cost of prescription drugs for people on Medicare. So that's being talked about. Nothing is final. Uh, contact your representatives and senator and uh, let them know that you want them to do something about the high cost of prescription drugs. Our next question is from Anna. Uh, who says that it's unfair uh, to not let seniors that don't like private Medicare Advantage service and want to go back to Medicare with a supplement. Uh, the private Advantage plan providers can refuse to let you go back uh, due to pre-existing conditions. Uh, and uh, Anna wants to know uh, what's going on here and what can we do about it? And to answer that question, welcome Diane Archer from Just Care and Social Security Works. Um, well, Anna raises a really important issue. Uh, Medicare Advantage plans are supposed to be competing on a level playing field with traditional Medicare, which is the public health that people with Medicare can enroll in. 
but the playing field has become really unlevel. And people who enroll in Medicare Advantage often are locked in to a Medicare Advantage plan for life. And that's because they often can't buy the supplemental coverage they need if they want to switch to traditional Medicare, either because they're in poor health and the insurer doesn't want to sell it to them and doesn't have to, um, or it's just too expensive. And so for that reason, we really agree that Congress needs to add an out-of-pocket cap to traditional Medicare so that it's on a level playing field with Medicare Advantage. And um, Congress needs to protect people who want to switch to traditional Medicare from financial risk. And this is especially important given the recent report from the Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General, which shows widespread and persistent inappropriate delays and denials of care in Medicare. Congress needs to make sure that people who are in these plans that are run by bad actors have a way to switch back to traditional Medicare. So the data show that Congress could easily put an out-of-pocket cap in traditional Medicare um, at relatively little cost and with some of the billions of dollars it's currently overpaying Medicare Advantage. But politics and the power of the Medicare Advantage has kept Congress from acting to protect everyone with Medicare and give people that meaningful choice of traditional Medicare that they should have. So we've been educating policymakers about the need for this out-of-pocket cap at traditional Medicare so everybody can, can go in without financial risk. But it really would be helpful if you, Anna, and others who want to have a meaningful choice of traditional Medicare, contact your representatives in Congress and let them know that traditional Medicare needs an out. Absolutely. Our next question is for Alika. Uh, tell us about who can enroll in health insurance now uh, through the Affordable Care Act. And uh, if people aren't eligible, when does open enrollment begin? Great question, Laura. So um, we are currently in what's called the special enrollment period. That means open enrollment is ended and you can only enroll if you have uh, a qualifying life event. Um, examples of qualifying life events um, include, for example, losing coverage you had from a job or um, uh, if you got divorced from a, a spouse, for example. Um, so if you've lost coverage, uh, that would qualify you to enroll. There are a lot of other qualifying life events, um, you know, if you uh, had a baby or moved. Um, so we always recommend, you know, if you're not sure if this applies to you, reach out to um healthcare.gov, reach out to a local broker or a sister who can help you figure out if you might qualify. Um, this year, there is a special new qualifying life event um, based on income. So um, if you make below certain income limits, uh, that would also let you enroll any time of year. Um, so again, always recommend going to healthcare.gov, talking to a local broker or a sister. Um, you can give us a call at Health Sherpa, and we'll help you figure out if you might qualify to enroll in an Affordable Care Act. Now, if none of those apply to you, it's really also important to know that Medicaid, which is low cost um, insurance offered, low cost or even free insurance offered from uh, a state federal partnership, um, that is actually available to enroll in year round if you meet the income limits. Um, so if you are, um, uh, if you have a lower income, uh, even temporarily, it's really your eligibility is based on your income this month. Uh, always worth filling out an application for Medicaid and seeing if that can be a really great option. Great. Thank you, Alika. 
Uh, our next question is from Susan, who wants to know, why is dentistry not covered under Medicare? It's only discounted, not coverage. Diane. Uh, also a really important issue. Uh, everybody needs to, their teeth to be healthy. It allows for good nutrition. And Medicare has never covered uh, dental care, uh, general preventive cleanings or any other type of cavity fillings. Um, Medicare Advantage plans, the private plans, often cover a little bit of the cost of dental care from one of their in-network providers, but the out-of-pocket costs can still be prohibitive for a lot of people in Medicare Advantage. So for that reason, um, a lot of the um, members of Congress, particularly the Democrats in Congress, have been working to expand Medicare to include uh, hearing, vision, and dental care. And that has just been a really hard road for them because the costs are very high and everyone with Medicare would be taking advantage of these benefits, which are so critical to their well-being and they should be taking advantage. So it's all a question now of just pushing harder and harder, contacting your representatives in Congress, explaining to them why this is so important. And it, they should know already that these benefits are critical to people's health and well-being, but they need to be reminded and they need to put it at the top of their list um, as they look to ways to expand Medicare. Right now, as Laura mentioned at the beginning, there is um, work being done on the reconciliation package to lower the cost of prescription drugs to let Medicare negotiate uh, prescription drug prices. And that would save hundreds of billions of dollars. And some of that money could and should go towards vision, dental, and hearing. So there is money available in Medicare that could be allocated toward these benefits. We just need Congress to... Absolutely. Uh, and our next question is from Anne. Speaking of Medicare, is Medicare ending in five years? Uh, I see Medicare Advantage money is being given to private for-profit health insurance corporations. So, uh, Diane, what's with uh, the Medicare trust fund and uh, money running out? Yeah. Okay. So this is something that can be really confusing. And it's actually... Um, I want to first say, don't worry, Medicare is not ending. Medicare is strong. It's actually stronger this year than the year before. The Medicare Trust Fund solvency is for Part A, which is the hospital side of Medicare. And in, in 2028 now, um, it will be taking in less money than it's paying out, but there's still plenty of money in the Medicare Trust Fund to pay benefits under Medicare Part A, which is inpatient services. And again, uh, the reconciliation bill is intended to include provisions that would extend the life of the Medicare Trust Fund another three years to 2031. As far as uh, doctor services, outpatient services are concerned, those services are paid for through general taxes, and that could never run out of money. So we don't have to worry about that side ever. Um, I should just add that there have been times over the last 50 years since Medicare's inception when people have said Medicare's running out of money and they've scared everyone. Medicare has never run out of money. Congress has always stepped in to strengthen the trust fund when the need arose, and there's no reason to believe it won't continue to do so. Uh, there are too many millions of older and disabled people whose health and well-being are at stake. 
Absolutely. And uh, part of the reconciliation bill I've heard, uh, as you mentioned, uh, what might be in there is uh, some taxes on higher income people to help extend the Medicare uh, trust fund, um, the, the runway. That's exactly right. And we did. Uh, that's what Congress did uh, with the Affordable Care Act. It extended the runway. And now with this reconciliation bill, it intends to do the same. So uh, you should be contacting your senators, your representative, and asking them to work on this budget bill this month to lower the cost of prescription drugs, to help pay for affordable health insurance, uh, to help pay for Medicare going into the future. So keep contacting your representatives and make sure they are hearing from you because they are certainly hearing from uh, other people that are maybe not so interested in your health care. And now I am delighted to introduce our special guest today, Lizzie Presser, a reporter from ProPublica, who is going to be talking about the history of self-managed abortion, uh, the different types and current day activism in this space, as we continue to uh, discuss this issue in the wake of the Supreme Court ruling. Uh, welcome, Lizzie. Thank you, Laura. I'm glad to be here. Um, so I am Lizzie Presser. I'm a journalist at ProPublica, and I'm talking to you a bit about self-managed abortion in the United States. Several years ago, when President Trump was elected and um, justices who would overturn Roe v. Wade, I wanted to investigate how women in states with severe restrictions on abortion access were navigating. And I ended up finding and reporting on an underground network of abortion providers who were helping women terminate their pregnancies at home here in the U.S., the article is published in the California Sunday Magazine in 2018. So as a way of addressing larger questions today around self-managed abortions, I'm going to talk about this research on the underground network. Um, I want to talk about how they see themselves doing the work they do across the country. And also, um, I'll talk a little bit about other newer domestic and international groups that are helping women self-manage their abortions and offering legal guidance. So as we all know, on June 24th, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, sending the decision on abortions back to the states. Abortion today is banned in at least nine states and severely restricted in many more. Abortion bans were not part of our legal landscape when I started my reporting in 2017. But of course, women were still facing severe limitations and self-managed abortion was not legal. Still, women were looking for ways to self-manage their abortions for all kinds of reasons. Some of them talked about how the cost at a clinic was just too high, or they wanted privacy, or they wanted to avoid protesters, or they just preferred a home abortion in the way that some pregnant people prefer home births, or a clinic was just too far away. And so they were all looking for another option, even if it wasn't. So I'll tell you a bit about the underground network that I was looking at. It's comprised of midwives and doulas and nurses, some who are somewhat trained and some who are highly trained, but also mothers and activists and herbalists who had needed their own abortions or who had friends who needed an abortion. And they decided that they wanted to learn how to provide it. In 2018, there were 200 women in this loose underground network of abortion providers um, and they reached into every region of the United States. So the group attends, anyone who's joining the group attends multiple day workshops where they learn about the history of this work and they also study different methods for home abortion, which I'll discuss in detail a little bit later. So they're operating outside of the law to provide medically safe at home abortions um, at great legal risk. 
So the first thing to understand about this network is they don't see themselves as part of a new movement so much as they see themselves as inheritors of a far older movement among midwives in the United States. They consider themselves to be building on the work of midwives who provided home abortions until about the early 20th century in America. So one thing that's important to note is that in the mid-19th century, if a woman chose to miscarry in her first trimester before the fetus had started moving, which is referred to as the quickening, um, she was believed to just be restoring her period. It wasn't called an abortion. It was only considered an abortion if you terminated a pregnancy after your fourth month pregnancy. So midwives were helping women restore their periods with herbal recipes across the country with plants like pennyroyal and ergot and tansy. And even doctors were selling drugs that were made from herbs. It was actually the American Medical Association, which formed in the 1840s, that launched a campaign to criminalize abortion at all stages of pregnancy. They painted abortion as immoral. And by 1880, they had secured criminal abortion laws in almost every U.S. state. So the laws that sprung from this campaign granted only doctors the authority to decide when the procedure was acceptable. And the effort grew in part because physicians wanted to limit competition from midwives who were providing home health care, home reproductive health care. Many of the midwives when they were targeting were immigrants and women of color. And there's a great book, actually, that lays this all out by Leslie Regan called When Abortion Was a Crime that I highly recommend. These women in this network, they also don't understand themselves as operating too far outside of the medical guideline across the country in the sense that their work fits into what the WHO is recommending in many countries. The WHO has actually been promoting and publishing guidelines for midwives, even those who've only had a few months of training to provide abortions outside of traditional clinic settings. And the WHO lays out the proper dosages and clear instructions for different gestational ages. With misoprostol, one of the drugs um, that they use, the World Health Organization recommends um, that it can take about 24 hours and that it's 80 to 85% effective on its own. And if you were to go to a clinic in the United States right now, you would get a combination of misoprostol and mifepristone, which is more effective. But misoprostol is much easier to get your hands on. um, And it's also a lot cheaper. Wholesale, it's a dollar a pill. There are very few risks. The main risk with the misoprostol Abortion is that it's not going to work if a woman has an ectopic pregnancy, which is a pretty rare condition in which the embryo has um, attached outside of the womb. And in that case, the drug just won't do anything. So in this workshop, the women were studying an 800-page training manual that was including the history, scientific studies, on the different methods, procedure protocols. And they were also training on providing informed consent and compassionate care. They also tried out some of the methods. So they were using papayas as practice wounds, and then often a woman on her period and a provider would do a demonstration for the group. So these are the four methods that they use. I'll go over them quickly. The first is misoprostol, which I just talked about. Um, It can be used up to around 12 weeks of pregnancy, and according to some studies, even longer. They're small white pills um, that are placed either under your tongue or uh, vaginally. And it's a drug that's used for miscarriage management as well, because it helps your uterus contract and it helps the cervix to dilate, expel the contents of the uterus. Uh, doctors actually can't test for misoprostol in your body if you were to show up at a hospital. So the providers in this underground network coach their clients that if for whatever reason, under the worst circumstances, they end up at a hospital, 
they can just tell the doctors that they are miscarrying at no, at no risk to their health. So the other three methods that they use are, uh, I guess I'll start with herbs. So they, they do work with herbal abortions for women who choose that path. Uh, herbal abortions have been used for centuries. They're not necessarily reliable. They have mixed results, but with certain recipes, some of these women have seen good results. There's also the Del M. Uh, this is a tool that feminists actually invented in 1971. It can be used for up to about six weeks of pregnancy and you can make it at home. So they would make these Del M's, which is composed of a mason jar and two plastic tubes. One plastic tube um, is attached to a cannula, which is like a medical straw that's inserted into the uterus. And second plastic tube is attached to a syringe without a needle that's just used to create suction so you can pump it. And if you have one cannula inside the uterus and another plastic tube attached to the syringe, either you or your provider can pump the syringe and you watch your blood and the mason jar. So those are demonstrations that were sometimes done during these workshops. Um, essentially, a woman would lie down, they would perform a Delam procedure and um, the woman's period, which would normally take five days, would release in about an hour. And then there's also the manual vacuum aspirator. And this is essentially a medicalized version of the DELM and it's used in abortion clinics around the country. And so for more um, practiced providers, nurses and midwives uh, who had more experience, they were learning how to use a manual vacuum aspirator for any client who chose to go that route. So the procedural training was actually quite straightforward for a lot of the women I spoke to in this underground network. And what all the members of this group told me was that it was really um, the emotional work that took up the majority of their time. They were, they were learning how to, to be present for women. Um, and, and that's also what the majority of this work is when they are practicing providing abortions at home, right? It's sitting with women, answering their questions, staying on call, cooking for them, um, cleaning their house, drawing them baths, and just being able to be with a woman at home as she self-managed. Um, I think what they like to talk about is that Roe v. Wade ruled on if a woman could have an abortion. And they see choice more broadly, not just whether a woman could seek an abortion, but how she wanted to have one, who she wanted around her, and where she wanted to be. So of course, this is a highly secretive network and it's also quite localized. In 2018, I said there are about 200 of these providers, but they're scattered across the country and it's not easy to know how to access this kind of care. Um, it's also not an, a, a network that's gonna be able to scale to meet the demand given the Dobbs decision. But what's been interesting to me is that in the years since I wrote this article, many more above ground organizations have cropped up to provide women with pills and guidance over the phone or on email. And there's even legal support. Um, I've been keeping note of all of these in the years since. So one that interests me perhaps most of all is called Aid Access and it's been around since 2018. It's, it's run by a team of doctors and medical staff and they ship pills from pharmacies in India to, um, to patients all across the United States. It costs between $110 and $150 per shipment. And they have people who are working a help desk 24 hours a day to answer any questions that might come up as women are self-managing these abortions. They also only, they send pills to people who are pregnant 
And they also send pills to people who are not pregnant, but who know that it's a possibility that they'll face an unplanned pregnancy at some point. So it's also available to people who want to prepare for the possibility of, of the need for an abortion in the future. It's been rigorously studied, and about 96% of the people who have obtained pills from aid access have had successful abortions without any surgical intervention. Uh, that's research out of the um, University of Texas at Austin. There were no reported deaths, and only about 1% of women who obtained those pills needed any kind of treatment like antibiotics or blood transfusions. There's also an organization called Plan C. They've built an online directory where people can find services that will send them abortion pills by mail. It also provides information on legal risk in any given state um, and the legal landscape in any given state. So these are options that can provide for a medically safe abortion at home, but not necessarily a legally safe one. And what's been nice to see recently is that there's been a rise in groups that are trying to help pregnant people navigate the legal risk. So um, one organization has written up a guidance. It's called the Digital Defense Fund, and they provide information on how to keep data private when searching for information on abortions. And then there's also the Repro Legal Helpline, and that's a hotline that's available to help answer any questions about the legal risks around abortion. Um, and an offshoot of that is called the Repro Legal Defense Fund, which is available to network of lawyers who are available to um, represent anyone who is facing criminalization for a self-managed. So what we're seeing right now, in my view, is not at all a return to pre-Roe America. I think with medication abortion and even manual vacuum aspiration and the proliferation of this kind of information and guidance on the internet, we're in a wholly different landscape. Um, even as these legal risks mount and the access shrinks, we're seeing much more availability of medically safe options for women who are comfortable self-managing their abortions at home. Uh, not all pregnant people are gonna be able to access this kind of care. The cost is still prohibitive for way too many people. $150 is not an easy amount of money to come up with. But it's a start and an important area for people in this country to be knowledgeable about and to continue to follow as it's definitely going to keep developing over the next several months and several years. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned that uh, some of these uh, groups like Aid Access, uh, you could get uh, access to uh, one of the abortion pills ahead of time. Do you know what the shelf life is on, on those pills? How long they last? I believe the shelf life for misoprostol is about two years and mifepristone is five. So it actually is, an, is a, a pretty lengthy period of time. Um, yeah. And I think it's I, when I was writing this article, I, I'm not sure if that was an availability to be able to order those pills ahead of time. And so that's um, an important thing for, I think, everyone in this country to know. Yeah. Absolutely. So if it's something you might need or someone you love might need, you can order ahead of time and keep them uh, on hand. Uh, and, and the legal landscape is so complicated right now and things change daily that we, we can't even say which states, uh, what is legal and what is not, because it could be changing even as we speak. So uh, what the Supreme Court ruling did was uh, leave many millions of us in this uh, unknown territory where we do not know what our rights are and what we can and cannot do for our own health. Exactly right. So uh, thank you for uh, being our guest and sharing this information with us. Uh, do you have some uh, URLs to mention that people can uh, look at for more information? Yes. Um, 
for Plan C, which we talked about, it's plancpills.org. For Aid Access, which I talked about, it's aidaccess.org. On uh, data privacy, it's digitaldefensefund.org. And on legal questions, it's reprolegalhelpline.org. Thank you. Uh, We are not lawyers. This is beyond what we can help you, the audience, with. But hopefully those resources will be helpful in answering any questions that you have. Thank you again, Lizzie, for being our guest today. Uh, Thank you to our panelists and to our audience. Please keep calling or texting in your questions. We will answer your questions in future episodes. Uh, Thanks again for listening to Care Talk.